Uh, I'm going to talk today about artifact welfare, and by artifacts, I mean things like this. Um, there's probably a thermostat somewhere, corkscrews, things like that. That's what I mean by artifacts. I'm going to talk about whether or not they have a welfare, and by welfare, what I mean is um, whether you can do things that benefit or harm them. And there's a reason there's a question mark there. It's because that's a weird view. Um, but I'm going to try to argue uh, that certain people in the environmental ethics literature um, are really committed to the idea that they should think that artifacts have a welfare, despite that being a really disastrous consequence for them. Um, doesn't bother me so much, but we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, most of the work I'm going to present today is from a, my book, um, The Death of the Ethic of Life, which is a book that's about this view called biocentric individualism. Um, biocentric individualism is the view that a certain type of thing and a certain type of thing only has moral status. Um, and the book defends a lot of different things. It's a book, but uh, it's mainly meant to defend this view that non-sentient this view, biocentric individualism, it says, all non-sentient organisms have a kind of moral status is false. That's the rough way, that's the rough thesis of the book. Um, but it's um, concerned to sort of diverse the, divorce the idea of welfare from moral status. There's a standard view in environmental ethics and elsewhere that there's a tight connection between having a welfare being the kind of thing that can be benefited and harmed and being the kind of thing that matters from the moral point of view. Standard plausible thing to say, at least on the face of it, is that this table doesn't matter from the moral point of view for its own sake. Right? You can do whatever you want to it except that people own it, and I'll talk more about that in a bit. Um, and that's because there's nothing you can do to make its life better or worse off its existence. I guess it doesn't have a life. We'll get to that issue later. Um, so in essence, uh, but what's different about the book compared to uh, lots of people criticize every view in philosophy, what's different about the book is that um, it tries to argue for this anti-biocentric indigenous view in a way that's completely different from how the standard critic, which we call sentientists, people that think all and only sentient organisms have this kind of moral status tries to argue for it in a way that even the biocentric individualists should be forced to accept and not the sort of standard way. And I'll get into all those details, but that's roughly what's, what I'm going to talk about. It's just a little piece of the book. Um, so biocentric individualism is a view that a certain kind of moral, moral status is exclusive to a certain set of beings. So um, sentientists are those that think all and only sentient organisms or sentient beings. It doesn't have to be an organism. I think everybody in this literature thinks that if you created an artificial intelligence and it was obviously conscious and had feelings and was just like us mentally, everyone's like, yes, that thing is owed moral duties. We have obligations to it. But we're just going to set that aside, that complication. Um, so biocentricism is a view that um, it's not just sentient beings, but we should extend the domain of moral considerability beyond to include non-sentient organisms. But we shouldn't extend it beyond that. Things that do not have moral considerability, that's the kind of moral status, and I'll define that in a bit, um, uh, are non-sentient non-individuals. And you can think of that as just bio biological collectives, ecosystems, species, biotic communities. They want to say those things do not have this kind of moral status. And then they also want to rule out simple artifacts. Now, the book tries to show that um, neither of those tricks work. You can't, you can't confine it in that way. You end up allowing for both non-sentient non-individuals or communities and simple artifacts. But we're just going to focus on the artifacts today. Uh, so the biocentrist sort of has to wage a war of two fronts. They have to argue against the sentientist to extend moral status beyond sentient beings and into include non-sentient organisms. Right? That's one fight they have to fight. Then they have to fight against these people called the holists, or the biocentric holists, I'm just going to call them holists, who think that you should extend it even further. They want biotic communities to be considered morally considerable. You have moral duties directly to ecosystems or directly to species. That's the view of the holist. And so they have to fight 
for excluding or not extending further than that. Um, against the artifact thing, like there's no war to be fought. Nobody thinks that artifacts have moral status. Uh, that's sort of a, often uh, uh, people just claim it's a reductio of your view if it turns out that artifacts have moral status. You're probably all on board with that. There are people in the world that endorse this view called robot rights, and they think like even non-sentient robots, we have obligations to them. I'm going to set them aside. Um, I've got a separate paper where I tell, talk about why they're wrong. Um, uh, so that's sort of what's going on. That's the picture. The picture, this is the picture the biocentrist wants to defend. And they have to defend it against the sentiences who want to make that thing red and against the holists who want to make that thing green. Okay. Okay. Uh, so as it happens, the biocentrist has an approach that they think can help them wage this war of two fronts in a pretty simple, clear way. Um, and I'm going to call that the welfare approach to defending biocentric individualism. It is the dominant approach to defending biocentrism. By dominant, I mean there's, I only can think of one biocentrist who doesn't fit this model. Um, the main biocentrist that the book-length defenses of biocentrism include Gary Varner, who has a book called In Nature's Interest, uh, Paul Taylor, who has a book called um, Respect for Nature, and Nicholas Agar, I can't remember the title of his book, but he also defends this, this kind of view. Um, and then there's lot, those are book-length defenses, then there's lots of little article-length defenses. So the welfare approach is a strategy to defending biocentrism. First, it involves a commitment to a specific definition or understanding of what moral status is. Moral status in the broadest sense just means a thing has moral status when you have some kind of moral obligation to do something regarding it. But that's really easy to come by. There's a certain sense in which you all have moral obligations regarding this. It's not okay for you to take it, leave with it, destroy it, it's because I own it. But that's a kind of indirect status. It doesn't matter for its own sake. So the kind of moral status that everyone in these debates cares about is a kind of direct moral status. And more specifically, what the, um, the biocentrist and the sentientist agrees with this um, is that the kind of moral status that matters is a moral status a thing has in virtue of having interests or a welfare. So like what it means to have moral status is to be the kind of being that has ways that your life can go better or worse and for those ways to matter from the moral point of view. This is a very natural picture amongst humans. You have all sorts of interests and I wrong you when I undermine them. Right? It's your interests carry moral weight. Um, so that's their, that's their view about what moral status is. Like, and you can see why this fits under the heading the welfare approach because it's essential to moral status that a thing have interests or a welfare. Right? That's the kind of moral status they care about. And then they have a pair of strategies tied to the notion of welfare for, on the one hand, extending moral considerability, that's the kind of moral status we're going to talk about, beyond sentient beings, and a strategy of exclusion for preventing it from leaking further out to the non-sentient non-individuals. And they're going to try to do that by defending a view about which things have a welfare. They're going to say to the sentientists, look, you're wrong to not extend moral status further than you do because the things I care about have a welfare and you have no good reason to exclude them. And they're going to say to the people about artifacts and the and people who want to defend biotic communities, you shouldn't extend that far because those things don't have a welfare. Right? So welfare is like sort of essential to their way of defending their view. It's not that they give separate kinds of arguments for the different components. Okay, so let's talk just briefly about the way that they try to extend moral status. They use what I call the strategy of extension, which is a common strategy for arguing that certain beings are morally considerable. So the way this works is this. You identify something we'll call an anchoring class. That's a class of entities where there's just a broad consensus over them having some set of interests that are morally considerable. So we would always, we're always typically a good anchoring class. We're the kind of things that have interests and those interests matter from the moral point of view. 
Um, so you pick some anchor class where there's general agreement. Then you pick your target class, which is a class of entities that you want to show are morally considerable. And you show that they have interests of the same type as beings in the anchoring class that matter. Then you try to argue, once you've established your target and your anchor class, you try to argue, well, there's no good reason for counting the interests of the individuals in the anchoring class, but not counting the interests of those in the target class. There's no morally relevant difference between the interests, so you should extend moral status. If anybody's familiar with the work of Peter Singer, this is exactly how Peter Singer argues for an extension of moral status. He says, look, we, uh, all human beings have morally relevant interests in virtue of the fact that they can suffer. Uh, all human beings. Animals suffer. Here's some evidence for that, right? So one way you can reject Singer is to deny the target class, but that seems increasingly scientifically implausible. Um, and then he says, well, look, so now tell me what the morally relevant difference between the classes is such that the human interest in suffering matters, but the animal interest in suffering does not. And so he says, you can't do that, therefore extend. So for the biocentrist, the anchoring class is going to be sentient organisms. But you're going to pick a set of interests that sentient organisms have, and you're going to try to say, look, um, it's just easier if I give an example. So Gary Varner's famous example is his cat. He, he cites a bunch of behaviors that would be bad for his cat, being allowed to go outside during the height of tick season, for example. But he tries to argue that you can't accommodate or explain why those things would be bad. And he thinks those are morally relevant, like I have a reason not to let the cat go out during the height of tick season. Um, uh, so then he sort of says, like, you can't accommodate, you can't explain those interests in terms of any mental states of the cat, because the cat clearly wants to go outside, the cat doesn't know about Lyme disease. Set aside those details of the account, that's how he tries to argue. He says, like, look, there's some, what he calls, biological interests of my cat that are morally salient, um, and that's his anchoring class. And then he says, but once you've got that, plants have that kind of interest. Whatever makes sense of the interests of my cat in not going outside at the height of tick season, the plant has, plants have that, or, um, we can get in a fight later about which, how far non-sentience extends or whether plants are non-sentient. All these people think they are, I think they are. Um, insects, sponges, whatever. You can make sense of there being things bad for them. Um, and so, once you have the two classes, you just argue, well, well, there's no morally relevant difference between the classes. And so if you're gonna grant that Nancy the cat has moral status in virtue of her, non, her interests that aren't part of her cognitive life, then you have to grant that plants or whatever non-sentient organisms also have interests that are morally relevant. So it's the same strategy that Singer employs, but you're just extending it further out. Okay, okay. Uh, we, we can get into the details of that later. Not much of that is gonna matter. It's just showing you the way that welfare is sort of involved in their approach. Okay, when it comes to exclusion, the standard strategy has just been to show that the best account of the interests of non-sentient organisms, once you try to spell out why it is that Nancy the cat has a biological interest or why it is that plants have an interest, whatever that account is, it's gonna turn out that both artifacts and collectives just don't have the interests. So the reason they're not morally considerable is because to be morally considerable, you have to have interests that then matter from the moral point of view. So no interests, no moral considerability. It's a necessary condition. Um, so they're gonna claim since non-sentient non-individuals, biotic communities, ecosystems, since they don't have a welfare, uh, and since simple artifacts, which seems clear to everyone don't have a welfare, um, we, get to get, we get the lines exactly right. We get an extension to non-sentient organisms, but because of the account of the welfare we used to get there, we have a good reason to stop there, not to go any further. So that's just all to say that the theory of welfare is playing a deep and important role in the, bio, in the best biocentric theories, both in terms of exclusion and inclusion. It's playing a dual role. Okay, so here are the goals for the talk. 
I want to show that on the standard and what I take to be the most plausible account of the interests or welfare of non-sentient organisms, you can't pull off the strategy of exclusion with respect to artifacts. I also defend it with respect to ecosystems. That's a separate talk. You have to get into all sorts of stuff about the levels of selection. We can talk about it if you want, but this is just about artifacts. And in doing that, I also want to ground a prima facie case for what I'm going to call organism artifact moral considerability asymmetry which is a long way of saying, whatever you decide about the moral status of organisms, non-sentient organisms, you should have that view about artifacts. So either neither of them have moral considerability or they both do. You can't cleave them. You can't sort of say, yes, plants matter from the moral point of view, but not corkscrews, which I realize is a weird thing to say. Um, so you can either say, yes, I think plants matter from the moral point of view, but so do corkscrews or deny both. So that's the, the considerability symmetry. Okay. Those are the goals. Here's how I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna start by outlining what I call the etiological account of teleological welfare. Um, that combines two things, uh, a view about how welfare can be grounded in teleology, which just means goal-directedness or goal orientation, and a view about how you ground teleology in etiological accounts of, well, in causal histories. They, they draws the name from what's called an etiological account of function, which is a common view in philosophy of biology for talking about um, the functions of traits, and I'll get into the details of that. So first I'll lay out some desiderata of an account of welfare, like what is it that an account of welfare should do, and then I'll defend or explain why the etiological account of teleological welfare is a really good fit for what the biocentrist wants. And it seems to get them a lot. I actually do think it's the right account of welfare for non-sentient organisms. So we'll talk a bit about that. And then once we've got that in place, I'll try to make the case for artifact welfare. I'll start um, by explaining how um, the etiological account of teleological welfare just sort of generally lends itself to making sense of artifact welfare. And the sort of key insight is something like artifacts are clearly teleologically organized. They are purpose-oriented items. And so if you're going to ground welfare in purposes, then it seems pretty plausible that that account is going to apply to artifacts. So you actually need to do some work to show why you shouldn't go to artifacts. The sort of default view should be, well, if you think teleology what grounds welfare, you're stuck with artifacts. Um, and I'll try to buttress that case by talking about synthetic biology as an interesting case where you have things that are organisms and artifacts. And so it's a weird thing to try to deny that they have a welfare because you're, then you have these things that are intrinsic duplicates. You have like a fern and a fern copy is what I'm going to talk about. Um, but you have to treat them completely differently. So I'll use that to motivate the case for artifact welfare. But the real defense of artifact welfare is going to come from responding to the standard accounts of why you shouldn't move to thinking artifacts have a welfare. And I call that section problems for the natural response because the standard argument is that the reason that artifacts don't have a welfare but organisms do is because they result from very different selection processes. Um, natural selection grounds true teleology, whereas what artificial selection does is it grounds a sort of derivative kind of teleology. And so whereas organisms are goal-directed systems, artifacts are goal-directed systems, but their goals are somehow ours, not theirs. And so that's the key difference between artifacts and, artifacts and organisms. Um, and I'll try to explain why that response fails, um, further cementing the case for artifact welfare. So I'll start by saying like, well, here's why it's natural to think you should extend this to artifacts, um, but here's how people have tried to respond, but they fail. Um, and I'll close by talking about some different types of responses you might have to this objection um, and uh, appeal to one particular distinction that gets brought up a lot, which is just the difference between being alive and not being alive as the difference maker between organisms and artifacts. Talk about why I don't think that's very plausible. Okay. Um, okay. So just as a starting point, uh, it seems extremely plausible to me that non-sentient organisms have a welfare, that things you can do are good or bad for them. 
If you take the ring of bark off a tree so that nutrients cannot pass up and down the tree, you are doing something bad for the tree. Um, that just seems so plausible to me. I, so I think, I think whether you think um, it matters from the moral point of view, which many people think that once a thing has a welfare, you're stuck believing it's part of the moral point of view. This is especially true for like consequentialists, uh, welfare consequentialists. Um, but what, whatever you think about that, it just seems like, at least intuitively, our verdicts are that we talk about plant welfare all the time. Um, it's sort of very natural to think of them as having a good of their own, um, independent of what's good for us. Um, and while you might sort of say like, well, what about why I think it's independent of us? Why I think it's good of their own? Just think of what you'd say about um, whether weed killer is good or bad for weeds. Weed killer is um, good for weeds in the sense that it is good for us getting rid of weeds. But the reason it's good for us in getting rid of weeds is because it's bad for weeds. So it's not some derivative way in which we talk about the welfare of plants. We like mean that things are good or bad for them, not good or bad for them relative to us. So it's just very natural. Um, so I think that that's, and that's sort of where biocentrism starts. That's a very intuitive thing to think about plants, that they have a welfare. Um, but of course, it's not enough to sort of rest on our intuitions. Um, many people would say the same thing about ecosystems, that people talk about the good and bad of ecosystems all the time. So the biocentrists can't just sort of rest on this intuition that plants have a good, because they want to be able to stop the extension to other things we intuitively talk about as being, having welfare or use welfare attributions with respect to. So ecosystems. Also, I don't know, car enthusiasts talk about what's good and bad for cars all the time. Um, so you need some way to like sort of, you need to give an account of welfare that's actually substantive and let you actually draw the lines. You have to actually defend some view about welfare. So it's, it's a good, okay starting point to sort of have the presumption in favor of plant welfare, but you actually need to do some work if you're gonna defend biocentrism. Okay, so what, what do you have to do to give a plausible account of welfare? There are lots of theories of welfare out there. Um, and the question is just what would it have to be look like to be more than just like saying like, yeah, plants have a welfare, but artifacts don't, or plants have a welfare, but ecosystems don't. How do we vindicate those judgments? Or how do we give a theory that seems to vindicate that set of the set of judgments that the biocentrist wants? Um, and I think there are, there's a pretty broad agreement on a set of criteria or desiderata for an account of welfare, an account of what it is fundamentally that makes you the kind of, a thing, the kind of thing that can have a life go well or poorly. Um, and those three conditions are, termed subject relativity. Um, what subject relativity means is that welfare, there's different kinds of good. Something can be a good member of a species or a good member of its kind. Like nobody would deny that some laptops are good instances of the kind and some laptops are bad. But that's not the same as saying that it's, there's things that are good or bad for a laptop. Something can be a good instance of a pine cone without that being something being good for the pine cone. Right, so there's different kinds of goodness. There's perfectionist good, there's, um, Oh, what are some of the other ones? Uh, well, let's, we only need one. There's perfectionist good, and then there's welfare goods. Um, and welfare goods are things that are good for the individual whose welfare it is. So it's subject relative. So it's a kind of good that's good for the thing that has it. Like when you improve a thing's welfare, that's good for them. It's not just good for the world or good in some other sense. Right. So you want it, whatever account of welfare you give, it's got to be. You got to make sure that the th that when a thing is benefited, it, it's the thing that's benefited. It's good for the thing that has the welfare. Second condition or second desiderata is non-derivativeness. Non um, whatever ends up being good for an organism or thing, whatever, if you're given a general account, it can't be, them, can't be good for them ultimately because it's good for someone else or something else. So it won't be a genuine account of welfare if what makes things good for plants is that it benefits us. And that won't vindicate our attributions anyway because we want to be able to talk about like the weed killer case, why it's, weed killer is bad for plants. 
So you need, you need to meet a condition. Whatever account you give has to make it so that the welfare of plants is non-derivative or the welfare of whatever things you're talking about. Um, and then the final condition is non-arbitrariness. It's easy to give a definition of something that satisfies the other two conditions just by fiat. Like, so what I'm gonna say is that um, what's good for paper is that it be yellow um, and it's good for it just because. Right, so now I satisfied subject relativity. What's good for paper is to make it yellow. I just said it's good for paper. Um, and it's not derivative. It's not good because it makes, I don't care about what color it is, but it's just good for it to be yellow. You're like, no, that's dumb. Um, you have to have some motivation for thinking that, like your motivation for your account of welfare. So non-arbitrariness is meant to capture that. Um, so you wanna be able to say like, yes, this plausibly makes sense. It's not just, you're just making up welfare for these things. It'll be easy to see how this works when we think about mentalistic theories of welfare. A mentalistic theory of welfare, as I'm gonna use it here, it has a more technical definition, just means a theory of welfare on which what's good or bad for you is given somehow in terms of mental states. Somehow derived by mental states. So let's just take, just as an example, this nothing hangs on the sample, let's just take hedonism, which is the view that your life goes well to the extent that you have experiences of enjoyment and the absences of experiences of suffering. It's not a stupid view, it's pretty widely held. Um, maybe it's wrong, but you can see that that account of welfare satisfies these conditions. Well, when I enjoy or suffer or have desire satisfied or whatever, it's clearly I am the, that's, uh, it's me, the subject that's benefited or harmed. It's not like enjoyment happens to me and then somehow Marcus is made better off or I become a better instance of my kind. In fact, by getting more enjoyment, I might become a worse instance of my kind. Um, so it satisfies subject relativity. Um, it's non-derivative. The fact that I suffer is bad for me. It's not because it's bad for anyone else. It's just, it's bad for me the one that suffers. Um, and it's non-arbitrariness. Um, I actually, nobody really defends this. It's just sort of assumed that it's not arbitrary that suffering is bad for people. I mean, I can get behind it because I don't like to suffer. Um, but there's no real defense of it. We just sort of agree that it's not really arbitrary to say that it's good or bad for you to suffer. That's a plausible view about welfare. You're not just making it up. It's not like, here's a view that would be arbitrary. Um, ultimately, what's good or bad for you is that you have experiences of red, independent of what mental other mental states you have. That would not satisfy non-arbitrariness. It's like you're just saying that red is good for me, but why? But the question, why is it bad for me to suffer, doesn't, doesn't seem like it, an it doesn't seem to admit of some arbitrariness. It's, that seems obviously true. Um, so that's how a mentalistic view satisfies these desiderata. Um, and presumably and hopefully the biocentrists can give an account of welfare that also satisfies them. That is their job. That is what they owe us. Um, and it's going to turn out that by meeting it, they fail in something else, but um, let's see if they can do that. Um, typical objections to biocentrism as it happens are, uh, from the sentientist side, are objections that their accounts of welfare fail to meet these conditions. So Feinberg is famous for arguing that the people who have tried to give an account of the welfare of plants have given a derivative account of welfare. That ultimately what's good for plants is ultimately what's good for us. Like they can't, fit, they can't, fail, they can't satisfy the non-derivatives requirement. Um, and Sumner uh, in, I forget the name of the book, he, he says that they can't satisfy subject relativity. On his view, when people define the goodness for plants, he's saying that they just, they're just saying that they're good members of their species. It's like what it means to be a good plant is to be, um, have broad leaves and that's because it makes you a good instance of your kind. So you're not really saying what's good for the plant, you're saying what it means to be a good plant. And those are different. Um, so we'll see if we can, we can meet those. The burden is on the biocentrist to provide an account that plausibly satisfies those criteria or desiderata. Okay, so, um, I think this can be done, and I think a first step to seeing how it can be done is to give uh, what's an account of teleological welfare. So, and this is pretty standard across biocentrists, with one exception. Uh, 
they ground welfare and teleological organization. They sort of say, look, look plants are goal-directed systems. They have ends. And it's because they're goal-directed and oriented systems that we can make sense of their welfare. And we do it by just defining what's good or bad for them in terms of the achievement of their ends. So something X, a resource, whatever, the sunlight, is good for some non-sentient organism O, let's say some tree, if and only if it promotes one of O's ends. So as long as O has the end of growth and reproduction, um, it'll promote it. X is bad for O. Let's say X in this case is um, uh, having your bark stripped, the bark, a ring of bark taken off. Uh, is bad for it only if it frustrates one of those ends. And you can see how that would frustrate one of the ends of the tree. doesn't allow it to grow past nutrients or whatever. So this is a view about welfare that grounds good for in teleology. How does it do on the criteria? Well, um, at least on its face, it seems to satisfy all the requirements. First, uh, subject relativity. Um, the unit of teleological organization is the thing that's teleologically organized, who's the frustration of their ends that it's their, their life or existence that goes better or worse, right? So it's, there is a particular unit of teleological organization and that is the unit of welfare. So that's how it sounds, satisfies the subject relativity. Okay. Non-derivativeness. Um, if non-sentient beings are teleologically organized and what's good or bad for them is defined in terms of what promotes their goals, then what is good or bad for them is independent in the sense that matters of what is good or bad for me can make sense of why it's bad for the weed to get weed killer sprayed on it, because it undermines its ends. Its ends, not my ends. Um, in fact, it's only good for me because it undermines its ends. Um, and non-derivativeness, or sorry, non-arbitrariness. Well, again, if we assume that non-sentient organisms are teleologically organized, we're not just stipulating by fiat what's good or bad for them. Promoting or frustrating ends, sort of like suffering or enjoyment, is pretty plausibly connected to the notion of good for and bad for. In fact, many accounts of many mentalistic welfare, many accounts of human welfare are teleological. Like Aristotle would say, like, fulfilling your ends is what's good for you. Um, on a very simplistic picture of Aristotle, I'm not an Aristotle scholar, so don't kill me if you are. Um, but it just seems like, yeah, it makes sense to tie what's good for you into terms, in terms of what promotes or frustrates your ends. That's not, that's a pretty natural extension. It's not, doesn't sound, it's not like the color example where like what's good for you is seeing red, full stop. It's very natural to tie good for to promoting ends. Um, and lots of theories of welfare do that outside of this domain. Okay. So in any case, it's not deeply arbitrary. Okay, now you might be thinking, whoa, 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 whoa. Um, this is a house of cards. Uh, the defense you've just given, just assume there's a real sense in which organisms are teleologically organized. If it's true that organisms really are goal-directed systems, then it's that, then that, if you can sort of say like, plants are teleologically organized, starting from that assumption, then you can give an account of what's good or bad for them that's non-arbitrary, non-derivative, subject relative. But why should we think that plants are teleologically organized, that we're not just arbitrarily or um, sort of anthropomorphizing, putting teleology on them? Why should we think they're teleologically organized systems at all? Um, so, if you're going to take the biocentrists seriously, if you really want to see them as providing an account of welfare that satisfies the conditions, they need to give us some account of teleology. Presumably some naturalized account. It's not, just the, it's not magical that plants are teleolog teleologically organized. We need some reason to think that they're really units of teleology. And they, they do have answers to this. Um, they both explicitly and implicitly appeal to accounts of naturalized, naturalized teleology to ground the teleological organization of, of organisms in ways that avoids this kind of objection. And they draw on what's called, or what are typically called, etiological accounts of function. 
Um, etiological accounts of function are accounts of what it means for a trait or a part to have a function. Um, and I'll get to that in a minute. But what the, what the biocentrist typically does is say, look, here are these etiological accounts of function. They ground naturalized teleology. I'm going to borrow that insight and plug it into my theory of welfare. They're just going to say, hey, we've got a naturalized account of teleology. I'm going to borrow that. It's defended independently of all the stuff I care about. I'm going to take that and just plug it into my theory. So they just develop what I'm going to call an etiological account of teleology. Right? Um, so let's talk a little bit about the etiological account of function. So if you think about, think about just the function of the heart. Um, this sounds plausible, that the function of the heart is to pump blood. Everyone on board with that? Seems like a true attribution. What about the function of the heart is to make thump noises? Doesn't seem right, okay? Um, and what about this, that it is the function of the heart to pump blood even in a heart that has never pumped blood? Someone's born stillborn. You say, someone says, what's the, well, what's the function of that thing in their chest? And you go, I don't know, it never did anything. No, you go, no, the function is to pump blood. It's just, it just defective. It's a defective heart. Oh, or something's broken. Um, and so proponents of etiological accounts of function sort of recognize that function attributions are teleological. The way you can make sense of this distinction between function and accident and function and defect is by appeal to teleology. You can talk about, if you can talk about what the heart is supposed to do, you can make sense of why its function is to pump blood and not make thump noises. Its function is doing what it's supposed to do. Um, and you can make sense of functioning things that don't ever do anything by saying, well, its function is to pump blood, that's what it's supposed to do, it just never did it. Um, and the way they do this um, is by explaining that um, you can appeal to natural selection to make sense of what parts are there for. So why is it that the parts end or why is it that the, part is the heart is supposed to pump blood? Because there was selection for pumping blood in the ancestral populations that had heart-bearing organisms. So what's the function of a trait? Whatever that trait was selected for in an ancestral population. So you get a, it's there for, it's there because it does this. It's not there because it makes thump noises, that's a byproduct. It's there because it pumped blood, right? And that's a teleological kind of ascription. And so the biocentrist says, oh yeah, this is great. Um, uh, there's lots to like about the etiological account of function. It gives me a naturalized account of teleology. It's grounded in a natural process. Um, it uh, um, appeals to natural selection won't be arbitrary. Like we can, there's an empirical way to verify. Well, it's hard, but you can try to get an empirical verification of what the selection history is for. Um, it won't be derivative. It doesn't depend on anyone else. It's not arbitrary. So you get an account of teleology that sort of grounds the kind of welfare you care about. Non-arbitrary, non-derivative, subject relative. Um, there are there's some things not to like. Um, first, there's a lot of debate about what the right view of function is. Um, and so if you, can adopt an, if you can adopt what's good about the account of teleology without committing to a view about function, that'd be great. And you can do it. We'll talk about that in a minute. There's also this problem of units. So the etiologist about function, they were concerned about concerned with explaining the function of particular traits. What's the function of the heart? What's the function of the nose? What's the function of the eye? But the biocentrist is not concerned with parts. We don't care about the welfare of the heart. Your heart does not have a welfare. Your heart's welfare is only, it only has a welfare with respect to you. It's like what's good for your heart is whatever ultimately produces, promotes your welfare. And so you need some way of being able to talk about um, the difference between parts and wholes, and the etiological account of function does not have that. Etiological account of functions are about parts. And so if you can avoid those things, great. Um, and so 
um, you really need an account, uh, you need to take what's good about the etiological account of function, but then do something to parse out this bit about units and do a bit to get rid of any commitment to a view about function. But that's not all that hard to come by. Here's a view called etiological teleology. Uh, Non-sentientism, sentient organism O has E as an end, if and only if there was selection for E at the level of individual organisms in the ancestral population of which O is a descendant. So what you're doing with this, what I'm doing with this definition was just getting rid of, or just avoiding this worry about um, talking about the difference between traits and holes. The reason, the reason it's good for your heart to function in the way that it does and to pump blood is because that's good for you. And the reason it's good for you is because it's individual organisms that were selected for having hearts that pump blood. It's not that hearts evolved in their own and then organisms went and put them in their chest. Um, no, they were selection of organisms with hearts of a certain kind. And so you can get around this problem of how do I say, like, it's my welfare and not my heart's welfare. We're not just a collection of parts with welfares. Neither are plants. Um, so you can do that just by building in this bit about the level of selection. Um, this, for the, in the book, this matters a lot, and I go at a lot of pain to defend it and explain why you have to have it. But that's because that leads to trouble um, for the uh, extension to uh, uh, non-sentient collectives. Because then you have to start, what the biocentrist does and has to do is to try to defend the view that only individual organisms are units of selection. If communities end up being units of selection, then they end up being teleologically organized and they run into trouble. Um, so you have to get into some stuff about units of selection. I'm just going to set that aside. That's why there's all the stuff about the level in there. Um, we don't need to worry too much about it. Um, also notice that there's nothing here about committing to an etiological account of function. You just say like, um, look, the etiologist about function had a really good insight that natural selection can ground teleology. Whether they did a great job of analyzing function in the long run, who knows, let them fight about that. But we can draw on their insight about grounding teleology and natural selection and build our account of welfare from it. And that's what etiological, or our account of teleology. Can build our account of teleology using that. So <clears throat> once you've got uh, a theory of teleological welfare, uh, which is just the view that what makes how you make sense of welfare for non-sentient organisms in terms of what promotes or frustrates or ends, and you've got an etiological account of teleology, you seemingly solve the, you, you, you've got an account of welfare that satisfies the desiderata. You've got a non-arbitrary, non-derivative, subject-relevant account of welfare, and the account of teleology that ultimately grounds it is, is fine. It's not, it itself is not arbitrary or derivative. Um, uh, so it seems like we've got an account, which I'm just going to call the basic account of teleological welfare, uh, which seems to vindicate our judgments about non-sentient organisms. Now, full disclosure, I actually think this is the true account of the welfare of non-sentient organisms, despite what I'm going to say in the rest of the talk about why artifacts also have a welfare. I actually, I'm not straw manning their view. This is just a refinement of the best views that are out there for non-sentient welfare. Um, and I think, I think it's, it's hard for me to get over the idea that plants have a welfare, and I think this is a really good way to capture it. Um, they're grounded in teleological organization, and we've got a nice naturalized account of teleology. Um, so for me, it really does count in favor of this view that it vindicates our pre-theoretical judgments about plants. Like that's for me as a starting point. I'll move off of it if I have to, but hope, I don't think we have to because of this. Okay. Okay, so just a quick summary. Here's the view. This is both components that we've already seen. The first one is the teleological account of welfare, and then the second one is the etiological account of teleology. Um, so now I want to transition to the challenge for biocentrism. Uh, it's my view, so I'm, I'm on board so far, but it's my view that they then can't carry out the strategy of exclusion, um, neither for collectives 
biotic communities, ecosystems, or for artifacts. But I'm only going to talk about the artifacts. If you want to talk about collectives later, that's fine. Um, I think as soon as we start to accept something like the basic ideological account of teleological welfare, I'm just going to call that the basic account from now on, we're ultimately forced to accept that artifacts, and by artifacts I mean simple things like corkscrews, thermostats, uh, this laptop, um, not, I'm not talking about advanced AI, those things you're going to be stuck believing they also have a welfare. So there's no way to sort of confine yourself once, you, once you've glommed on to the basic account. There's no way to sort of carry out the strategy exclusion and say, no, no, I'm going to resist and not believe that artifacts have a welfare. I think you're in trouble when you try to do that. Why? Well, one way to put, put the concern is to consider this alternative view called the generalized ideological account, which is just the same as the one I just showed you, the basic account, except for it removes any specific rest, reference to organisms. It just talks about things being teleologically organized and they're having a welfare. So something X is good for a non-sentient thing, doesn't matter what it is, T, if and only if it promotes one of T's ends. X is bad for T if and only if it frustrates one of T's ends. Um, and then I say T has an end if and only if there was selection for E at the level of T. It's like, why should we think of this only in terms of organisms things if we're not already a biocentrist? I can, you can see why the biocentrists would want to talk about just the organisms, because they want to keep artifacts out. But like, we could, if you think that what matters is teleology and being a unit of selection, why not have this generalized account? So what we're owed, is, it, this is a point in favor, one reason to accept the basic account is that it draws the lines correctly. It gives us something closer to that picture I started off the talk with. But if you're a biocentrist, you owe us a definition of what's special about plants. You need to do, carry out the strategy of exclusion, not just assert it by fiat. And so you need some defense of why we shouldn't slip from the basic account to the generalized account. Need some grounds for resisting that move. And that, of course, that's not to say that we should make that move. It's just to say that there's a prima facie reason that there's no, there's no good prima facie reason not to start from the generalized account. Now, a slight reason to think the general account is more plausible, it comes from synthetic biology. How many people here are familiar with synthetic biology? Okay. So synthetic biology is a term that gets thrown around a lot, and it stands for just a whole range of different research projects. Um, but it's useful to contrast what's distinctive about all of them or supposed to be distinctive about all of them compared to tra traditional genetic engineering. So traditional genetic engineering, you take a genome and you modify it, right? That's CRISPR, that's ev every genetic engineering technology we talk about is taking an existing genome and modifying or taking two genomes and choosing which one comes into existence, right? Those are all forms of genetic modification. Synthetic biology tries to build biological entities from the ground up or de novo, not drawing on extant tokens of DNA. So there are different research projects. One is synthetic genomics. Um, this is the main research project of the Venter Institute, which is the people who were the first people to map the entire human genome. Um, and what they've successfully done already is to, just using chemistry, and, and um, they've coded an entire bacterial genome. Not cloned it, they didn't take an existing one and make a copy, they wrote it from scratch. And they claim, it's getting cheaper and cheaper, it currently costs something like 10 cents a base pair to like basically type your own genome, but they're building up a coding language to be able to just write your own genomes. Um, and eventually they think they'll be able to write genetic sequences that have never existed. So in the bacterial case that they copied, they're like, hey, we want a genome that looks like this, we're gonna code that from scratch, organize the base pairs by choice. Um, but they eventually wanna be able to write their own organisms. That's one way to put it. And then there's this program within synthetic biology called protocells, which is the goal is to create things that function exactly like cells, so they have a functional mitochondria, they have a functional nucleus, but none of it is made from extant biological material. 
the way to think of this, although this is not accurate, is like transformers. Transformers clearly have the giant robots that run around. They clearly have like cells or some equivalent doing the functions of cells in them. They're like living organisms, but they're made of entirely different stuff. The, the job of protocells is to create things that are cell-like, but not involving any biological, traditional biological materials. Where you draw the line between biological materials and not at this point becomes hard when you're thinking about synthetic biology. Um, but what's most important about these research programs is that they are nothing like traditional genetic engineering. There is, not, there is no sequence in there that is drawn from a living extant organism, at least in the successful cases. Of course, there's parts of synthetic biology that blend traditional genetic engineering and synthetic biology, but forget about those. Okay, so these thi the, what's interesting about synthetic biology is the result is something we can call an organism. It's entirely artifactual and entirely organismic. You can write a thing, code a thing that is intrinsically identical, an intrinsic duplicate to a living organism, but it is fully made by us. It blends the category of artifact and organism or instantiates both completely. Now this raises a problem for the biocentrist with respect to the basic account versus the generalized account. If you think that, um, so consider two things. Consider a fern and what I'm gonna call an organismic fern copy. It's not clear that the organismic fern copy is even a fern because it's not a descendant of ferns. But it is intrinsically identical to another thing in the world that's a fern. So we've got fern and we've got argue the fern copy. Um, on the basic account of etiologic, the basic account, the basic etiological account, basic account of etiological teleology, teleological welfare, um, the fern does not have a welfare. The fern is just like this thing or a corkscrew. It is just an artifact, right? So if you think, but that seems wrong. It seems like if setting fire to the fern is bad for the fern, setting fire to the organismic fern copy is bad for the organismic fern copy. That seems very intuitively plausible, but only the generalized account can capture that, not the basic account. Because there was no ancestral selection history that led to the functions of the organismic fern copy. It was created in exactly the same way a corkscrew is created. Not exactly the same way, you don't code corkscrews, but it was created in almost exactly the same way you might write Microsoft Windows. Um, okay, so that's a minor reason for moving over. Um, so what can the biocentrist say in response to the prima facie case for accepting the generalized account? Well, the most common, and this is a pun, natural response is to appeal in some fashion to the distinction between what's natural and what's artificial and argue that there's something about artificial things that undermines there being bearers of welfare. That welfare really should be restricted to natural organisms. Synthetic ferns be damned. Um, of course, you can't just say organisms are natural. Uh, uh, and that's what makes their welfare matter. The normativity of naturalness has a long history. Lots of people have thought about whether naturalness gives rise to, is a good-making feature or a value-making feature. Um, and some people do think that it carries a kind of value. But it's not typically considered welfare value. When people say, like, natural things are good, they don't mean because it's natural things are good for it. Right? That's a different kind of thing. They just think it's better to live in nature or do things the natural way. Um, but that's not a welfare description. Um, so it's not the sort of naive natural versus artificial distinction that's gonna help you here. Um, instead, what the biocenter has in mind is an appeal to the distinction between artificial and natural selection. Uh, it's because organisms are the result of a different kind of selection process, artificial selection, that they don't count as welfare bearers. So they, this is what the selection process looks like for um, artifacts and that's what the selection process looks like for uh, red bugs, um, I guess. I don't know. I found it on the internet with a quick Google search. Um, but how, how, so like that's, that's what the key tool is for the biocentrist. Every biocentrist, except one, who wants to make this argument 
appeals to something like this. They say there's something about artificial selection that undermines welfare attributions and artifacts. Well, why, why, How, what does that look like? Why is that? Well, here's an argument. Um, the ends of things that result solely from artificial selection are derivative. The ends are derivative. If the ends of such things are derivative, then their welfare is derivative. If the welfare of such things is derivative, then they don't have a genuine welfare. Teleologically organized artifacts result solely from artificial selection. Therefore, teleologically organized artifacts don't have a genuine welfare. Um, on the face, this looks like a pretty useful approach for explaining why organisms have a welfare and artifacts don't. Um, setting a, I mean, you have to take a weird stance on synthetic organisms, but set that aside. Um, premise two seems really plausible to me, so does three. If the ends of things are derivative, then they don't satisfy the condition of having a non-derivative welfare, right? What makes it good for it is not really ultimately it. It becomes derivative. Um, four seems kind of like a defining feature of, of artifacts. Uh, teleologically organized artifacts result solely from artificial selection. We can talk about that a little later. Um, there are some instances of artificial intelligence research where you're actually using natural selection processes to generate artifacts, and so there it gets a little blurry. Um, but the real issue here, I think, is with premise one, though it has seemed super plausible to nearly everyone in this literature that the ends of things that result solely from artificial selection are derivative. So that's what I want to focus on and ask whether that's true. Um, what do we mean when we say that the ends of things that are derived from artificial selection are derivative? In what way are they derivative? Well, in the literature, and when, you, when I talk about this, there are two ways that people kind of describe derivativeness. It gets cashed out in two ways. First, I'm gonna label explanatory derivativeness. Uh, according to explanatory derivativeness, the ends of things that are the result of artificial selection cannot be explained except by appeal to the ends of others. Like, that's what it means for a thing to be explanatorily derivative. That you can't explain its teleology without citing the um, ends or intentions of other beings. And the other thing is a kind of what's common to call use derivativeness, which is things that are artificially selected or things with artificially selected ends, they only exist to be used by us. We are an existing existence condition. So the sense in which they're derivative is that they only exist to serve us. These are the kinds of things that come up. Um, and the question is, do either of these kinds of derivativeness um, undermine genuine teleology and artifacts? Do they make them not bearers of genuine teleology? I'm gonna argue the answer is no. Um, I'm gonna start with explanatory derivativeness. That's my dog. Uh, so I'm gonna start by buttering you up with some easy cases and then slowly take you down the path to accepting my view. Um, so we began domesticating dogs as long as 100,000 years ago, we think. And there are some interesting evolved differences between dogs and wolves during that span. First, dogs evolved to seek out help from humans with difficult tasks, and that behavior is not seen in wolves. They run into a task that will seek our help or come to us. I just saw a video on the internet the other day of two dogs that ran up to a human to get it to come save another dog that was drowning. Um, dogs are much more responsive than wolves to gestural cues, like they seem to be able to follow a point in ways that wolves do not. And dogs, uh, this is cool, if you stare into the eyes of a dog, especially a puppy, um, then uh, the oxytocin levels in the dog will increase. Also cool, it happens in you too. So when you are mutually staring at a dog, your oxytocin levels are firing, which they think facilitates uh, bonding. So it creates a tighter bond between us and dogs. And that doesn't happen in wolves. You stare at a wolf, it just wants to eat you. Um, uh, now this seems true. It's good for dogs to seek us out for help, um, to be responsive to our gestural cues, and to bond with humans. And this is despite the fact 
that you can't explain why the dog has those traits independently of our intentions. The reason dogs have those traits is because we wanted them to have those traits. Maybe not explicitly, we didn't say like we want them to be responsive to gestural cues, but there was this co-evolution that happened that you can only explain in virtue of our intentions over what we were trying to do with respect to dogs. Now here's an obvious objection to that. Um, you can explain why these things are good for dogs just by talking about the mental states of dogs. Dogs that don't respond to gestural cues and don't seek help from others and don't bond with us, they die or they get sent to the shelter or whatever. And so you can try to do it, you can try to explain away this case by appeal to mental states. Okay, so let's try another case. Uh, we can consider cases where the relevant interest cannot be explained by appeal to cognitive capacities. So this is a wild bottlenose dolphin, or it's a picture of a wild bottlenose dolphin, holding a sponge. Now, it turns out that some dolphins break apart sponges in the ocean and they use them to probe the ocean floor for food. So they'll like bump into stuff to see if it is food. Um, uh, now, this is a really cool case. Um, it's tool use in a non-human animal. Um, it's cultural transmission. It turns out the dolphins that do this are restricted to a geographical area and they teach each other this trick. Um, but for my purposes, what's cool is not, has nothing to do with the dolphins. Um, it's useful because it's a case of tool use of a, not an inanimate object, but a non-sentient organism, a sponge. Now, what I've told you so far is completely factual. But now I'm going to just engage in some just-so storytelling. I'm going to make up a story about the evolution of these sponges. So let's imagine that the dolphins' use of these sponges has come to play an important role in the evolutionary trajectory of these sponges. The dolphins prefer rounder sponges. that's just easier to get their nose around. Um, for some reason, they prefer redder sponges. And um, let's also assume that being used by dolphins correlates with higher reproductive success. So it's good to be used by the dolphins. So over a long period of time, you can guess what happens to the sponges. They become rounder and they become redder. Um, now, this seems plausible. Being round and red is good for a sponge. When a sponge is born with the wrong shade and isn't used by dolphins and doesn't reproduce, that's bad for it. Um, but you can't explain why it's good or bad for the sponge, why what its ends are, without reference to the dolphin's intentions. Assuming you think dolphins have intentions, that's part of this case. Um, so you have a case of an inanimate object whose teleology can't be explained or is explanatorily derivative. It can't be explained without reference to the ends of another organism. Okay. Now, I guess you could say about this case that, well, what the biocentrist could say is that animal intentions don't matter. What undermines genuine teleology is human intentions. That seems like a really weird thing for, to say when your view is to sort of defend a view that's um, sort of non-anthropocentric, like somehow human intentions are special. But we can set that aside. I'll just give you another case. Humans have walked the earth for approximately 250,000 years, and our intentions have played an important role in shaping the fitness landscape for many non-sentient organisms. So ultimately, you can't explain what's good or bad for lots of plants without referencing human intentions. The ultimate selection story for why certain organisms have the shape that they do or the traits that they do is going to reference our ends. Um, uh, so it just doesn't seem plausible that before we judge that trees have a welfare, we first have to do a bunch of biology to find out whether those trees' ends were influenced by human intentions. Just seems irrelevant. Like, the biocentrist doesn't think that. The biocentrist thinks plants clearly have a welfare. We can ground it in teleology. It doesn't matter that that teleology is in some sense explanatorily derivative, that when we try to explain it, we're going to reference human intentions. Okay. okay. Um, now, uh, well, I'm just going to set aside this quick aside because I don't want to go too far. We can talk about it later. One final challenge to the appeal to explanatory, explanatory derivatives to ground a claim that teleology of artifacts is derivative. What if creationism is true? 
If creationism is true, if we imagine a fully intentional God that has its own ends and creates every species on earth, um, then if you really take seriously the idea that explanatory derivativeness undermines genuine teleology, then nothing is genuinely teleologically organized. We're all just, um, you can't explain why we have the ends that we do except for, by appeal to God's intentions. Um, but the biocentrist doesn't think this. The biocentrist goes to pains um, to give a naturalized account of teleology because they don't think creationism is true. But if creationism were true, they'd have a really easy way to explain why or organisms are teleologically organized, um, and they would just adopt it. Okay, okay so here's just a quick summary of, of that. So we have this, um, this claim that um, the fact that their intentions are part of the explanation of why organisms have the ends that they do undermines their being genuinely teleologically organized. And I gave a series of cases and tried to explain um, uh, why, they, why the cases suggest that explanatory derivativeness does not undermine genuine teleology. I gave a hint about some ways you might respond to these, but ultimately I think those fail. Um, you're stuck thinking that explanatory derivativeness doesn't matter. Um, and then there's a second objection, which is if creationism is true, then everything's explanatorily, every end of everything is explanatorily derivative, but it doesn't seem relevant to whether or not things have a welfare. Okay, so much for explanatory derivativeness. What about use derivativeness? Um, well, it also seems implausible. Consider that many humans are use derivative. Imagine a very selfish parent that wishes to do everything they can to ensure their child will be a professional basketball player. Uh, they learn which genetic sequences propose one predisposed one to being tall, coordinated, fast, good hand-eye coordination. They do genetic selection of some sort to ensure that their resulting offspring will have those sequences. Once the child is born, they work hard to ensure that that child will make choices in their life that lead them to play basketball. This is like, um, do people know who Lamar Ball is? This is like the worst version of Lamar Ball. Um, uh, but still, Lonzo Ball is teleologically organized towards the end of playing basketball, despite the fact that he would not, ex in the evil scenario, this one, he would not exist if it were not for that, for the, for, for the use of Lamar. Um, so it just doesn't undermine claims about the ends of the resulting child, the fact that they, that they would not exist except for the ends of someone else. And we can tell this story about dogs. Dogs would cease to exist. Probably not, there's enough wild populations now, but at some point, dogs could have ceased to exist um, if we didn't want to use them. And this is true for almost every crop. That's a banana before we got a hold of bananas. Bananas don't look like that anymore. Um, bananas only exist because we want to use them for certain things, eating them. Um, and so the fact that you can't, the fact that we have control over the existing con existence conditions of an entity doesn't undermine the fact that that entity might have its own ends. Again, you can appeal to creationism. If creationism is true, everything is use derivative. But if something's use derivative, it doesn't follow that its ends aren't its own. Um, so, the problem here is um, premise one is false, and I think both of the attempts to that both kinds of derivatives make the same mistake. They confuse a claim about the source of teleology that, te that it wouldn't have teleology but for us, or you can't explain what its ends are ultimately without talking about what humans care about, um, with the subject of teleology, which thing is teleologically organized. Um, and I think it's pretty clear that though all almost every artifact is, its teleology is explanatorily derivative and use derivative, it doesn't follow that it is not teleologically organized, that its ends aren't its own. Because if you accept that, then you have to accept that almost, or at least a lot of other non-sentient organisms have ends that aren't their own. And the biocentrist doesn't want that. So the argument's unsound, premise one is false. Um, and 
just I'll finish up by sort of exploring what some op what options are available to the biocentrists at this point. First option, you can accept the ideological account of teleological welfare, like like I do, and you can then identify some other way to deny that artifacts have a welfare, right? Come up with something that's not explanatory derivative, some difference maker to whether they have a welfare. Or you can grant that artifacts have a welfare, but defend moral considerability asymmetry in some other way. You say something like, yes, artifacts have a welfare, yes, plants have a welfare, but only plant welfare matters from the moral point of view. You could try that. Nobody has ever tried that. You could. Everyone just tries 1A. Uh, or you could reject the ideological account of teleological welfare, but then you have to defend some alternative account of welfare for non-sentient organisms, and you have to do all the work of explaining how those alternative accounts um, uh, justify the, the picture at the beginning. So it's not enough to just say, like, here's my alternative account. You have to do a lot of work. Um, and it's very hard. In the book, I try to show that, like, that work actually can't be done. Um, that these alternative accounts of teleological welfare, these alternative accounts of welfare, teleological or not, um, just don't, can't do the work of giving you a non-arbitrary, non-derivative account. Or you can concede and accept uh, or artifact organism moral considerability asymmetry. Uh, symmetry, sorry. You can just sort of say, Yep, this is the best account of welfare, but I can't do any of these other things, and so, yeah, i got to treat them the same. Whether that means you should treat them both as having moral status or reject them both as having moral status is an open question at this point. In the book, I argue that you should reject, and I think you should endorse symmetry and then reject their moral significance of both, um, but I haven't shown any of that here. Uh, we're at 5.06, and so I'm going to skip this last section where I looked at the difference. So some people think that the real difference is pointing to the difference between living and non-living, and we can talk about that in the Q&A Q if you want, um, but it's already gone long. So my goals were to show that uh, on the standard and most plausible account of interest and welfare of non-sentient organisms, that's the etiological account of teleological welfare, the strategy of exclusion fails with respect to artifacts. And to show that, I've tried to show that, like, Artifacts are teleologically organized, and the standard moves we make to try to say why their teleological organization is not of the right kind break down. That's the natural artificial selection distinction. And uh, that, that work serves to ground a prima facie case for or organism artifact moral considerability symmetry um, because before you can deny that, before you, to overcome the prima facie case, you have to do the work of citing a new welfare difference maker citing some moral considerability difference maker or developing an alternative account of welfare. Okay. Thanks.